Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm live and talking to Nick Maley, a.k.a. That Yoda Guy, who was a creature and special effects makeup artist for the original Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back. We discuss his first interactions with the great Stuart Freeborn, as well as his myriad of experiences working on the Cantina Aliens, building multiple Yodas used for filming, and working on creatures like the Minoc and some secret lost characters as well. Buckle up, because this is Talking Bay 94, Episode 112, Nick Maley. Let's start at the beginning. Sure. What inspired your love of wanting to even just get into the movies in the first place? Well, actually, when I was a kid, I thought I'd be a performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was an actor, but he also was a singer, so he would do cabaret. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when I was seven, eight years old, I, you know, at the weekend when other kids were at home playing with their friends, I was on a train to go wherever my dad was for the summer and, and, and hanging out backstage. And so I figured I, um, when I started doing the school plays, I wasn't going to have some teacher do my makeup for me. What mm-hmm. did she know about it? I, you know, I hung out with real actors. <laughs> uh-huh. So I guess I was a precocious seven-year-old right. who uh, was making beards as the wise, you know, <laughs> the three wise men right. or something. Um, and I thought, I, I, as I say, I thought I'd be a performer. But um, I, at, when, I was, when I was a kid, I, I realized now that I was dyslexic, mm-hmm. and no one recognized that oh. when, when 50 odd years ago. Right. Um, and so I would, uh, they'd give us 20 words to spell, and I'd get three of them right. right. But I, so they thought I was kind of stupid. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I also realized I had attention deficit, and you know, a lot of the time it was hard for me to, especially when you, when you don't, uh, spell well then you don't read well mm-hmm. and so people would laugh when you had to read out loud mm-hmm. in class and and that meant that you know I I kind of shunned that to some extent so the teacher would go out the room I'd stand up and tell jokes to all the kids right. and and perform and it wasn't until I was 13 that my teacher explained to me that I was an idiot, that I'd failed all my exams and I was going to work in a factory, and that I was a dreamer and I should give up these crazy ideas Mm -hmm. that I had because they'd never amount to anything. Um, And I should take up woodwork and metalwork so that if I was really lucky, I could be a foreman in the factory. Uh And, you know, I say in my book, um, if you believe other people's negativity, then you allow yourself to be limited by their lack of imagination. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, a, that's a critical thing that led me in these latter years. I don't want to say that in a way that makes it sound like I'm going to keel over before the interview's over. But um, in these later years, um, to try and encourage young people to follow their dreams and believe in themselves and not settle for less just because that's what other people do. So um, when I got to... I, I, I learned stage makeup from my dad. Um, I was partly teaching it when I was literally 13, 14. Um, I know that sounds ridiculous, but um, I would earn pocket money by following my dad through a class that was 
learning their makeup for the end of term productions right. and help them sharpen their eyebrow pencils and mix their colors and right. explain to them why their colors were going all muddy because they mixed the wrong colors together, etc. Um, and when I got to 18, I suddenly realized that people had been lying to me and I wasn't going to be tall and handsome and that I was going to be unemployed as a performer or for, for a large part of my life and that maybe it would be better to utilize those additional skills to work in the business. So I hadn't set out to do that. Right. But, you know, so again, something else in the book is I say, you know, one of the things that's unfair in life is that as a teenager, Long before we have any experience of life, people start to push us to decide what we're going to do for the rest of our days right. when we've got nothing to base any opinion on, right? right? And so, uh, and then if you do aim for something that's extraordinary, then people will say, yeah, I don't know about that. You know, that's right. going to be difficult. You know, or, or if you say, I want to be a performer, People say, well, why don't you go to university and, uh, and get a degree as a, an accountant? And then you've got something to fall back right. on. And, that, and getting a degree as an accountant is preparing yourself for failing at what it is you're trying to do. Yeah. Right? You spend three years and spend a lot of money to, uh, to prepare for failure. Right. So I didn't do that. I, I, just, um, I just grabbed every opportunity I could. I focused on where the rough direction of where I wanted to go without knowing exactly what I would do when I got there. Yeah. And I think, that, I think that's, that's key. You have to have a sense of direction because if you don't, you just go round and round in circles, right? Yeah. And you need to achieve something every day that gets you one centimeter closer to where you're trying to go. I love it. And then, of course, when you ended up working with the Freeborns, how did that relationship begin? And then that went for seven years and really incredible movies, not just Star Wars. How did you first get to know Stuart and then the rest of that team? Right. Well, it, you know, it was hard getting a union ticket to get into the business. Mm -hmm. uh, that took me a couple of years of being super persistent. Uh, once I got in, uh, there was a, when I got in, there was a sudden flux of movies being made mm -hmm. and they didn't have enough people. So they brought in, uh, I think there were, yeah, there were 10 of us mm -hmm. that all came in at the same time. We'd wow. all been waiting to get union tickets. Right. And we were the only 10 people to get union tickets in 15 years. Wow. Right? Yeah. And um, within a month, I was unemployed again. Mm-hmm. And so the realities of freelance living, you know, I'd given up an office job that I didn't want to do in the first place. Right. So that wasn't really the issue. Uh, I was getting paid three times what the office job would have paid me. Mm -hmm. But then in one month, I was unemployed. Right. right? And so I realized uh, that I, I needed to network mm -hmm. with the people who could give the work because right. although there were 60 makeup artists in the branch, there was really only about 20 of them that were chiefing movies and mm. they would determine who they were going to, you know, right. who they were going to employ. You know, because I'd started in uh, theater, theater's all about character makeup. It's all about projecting a personality 300 feet into the audience. Um, and so the idea of making pretty people look 
prettier <laughs> really wasn't terribly inspiring for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was happy to be there, sure. I was happy to do the work, <laughs> right. but um, that wasn't going to keep me satisfied for, for 40 years. Right. So I started to introduce um, character makeup in a, in a more subtle form into the characters that I was creating, and that separated me from um, most of the other people and led me towards prosthetics. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I looked at the people that were doing prosthetics and other things, and there were really only about three or four of them. Yeah. Stuart was the one, having done 2001 A Space Odyssey, right. he was the one that I really wanted to work with the most. Right. So I haunted him for two years uh -huh. until he you know, got <laughs> to know who I was. Right. I, would, I would go to the studio where I knew he was working, right. Um, I would go in in the morning, like I was one of the makeup artists, flash my union card. <laughs> right. uh, I had no money, right. so you know, I, I would wander around the studio rather aimlessly, and then uh, I would go into the cantina mm -hmm. at the time when he was likely to be there, and right. I would buy a cup of tea and sit down at his table right. and start a conversation with him just so he knew who I was. Right. I would go to the union meetings, and I would sit within two rows of him. Mm -hmm. And I would stand up and say something, even though it might be <laughs> something really stupid, right. just so they would call out my name and he would know who right. I was, right? <laughs> right? And I knew that eventually there would come a time when he needed someone and all his friends were working mm -hmm. and he would look at the list of unemployed people and my name would come out because he'd met me six or eight right. or ten times. And so that's how... That started. He oh, asked me to work with him for two days on Young Winston. That mm -hmm. was 1971. You know, the, the people who were doing the crowd, uh, I mean, Young Winston, it was the Houses of Commons in 1880-something. Right. And everybody had these long beards, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and the guys who do the crowd, they're either the newcomers who aren't really sure what they're doing, or the, the old-timers who used to be heads of department but you know, aren't really up to doing that anymore. Right. Certainly the old-timers, they didn't really like the fact that I would do them. Do you do the makeup as quickly as you can to get everybody on set. And then rather than sitting around and talking, I would pull my people out and I would do um, additional makeup on them to mm. turn them into the kind of characters that look good enough to be in, in, in close-up, right. even though they were background characters. Mm -hmm. And on the, by the second day, all my characters were in front of crowd, <laughs> uh -huh. and the others were behind. The other guys were upset with me. They kept saying, if you do that, they'll expect us to do it. Right. But, you know, like, well. <laughs> but uh, my two days turned into 16 weeks, yeah. and I went on location to Morocco wow. with, uh, with that movie, and we made the Moroccan army look like whirling dervishes and the English 112th Lancers and, and, and had battles in wadis and, and wrestled with scorpions and various other things as well. So that was the beginnings of it. Yeah. But he was using me as a straight makeup artist, right. not as an effects guy. Mm -hmm. Later on, he did um, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, and I really wanted to be making prosthetics on that. Um, but he used me as a straight makeup artist, and I wasn't part of the effects team. So in the meantime, I had made friends with Graham, his son, right. 
who really was the heir apparent, an unsung hero for Star Wars yeah. that people really don't talk about. And yet, uh, I would say for, for principal photography, 85% um, of the characters in Mos Eisley Bar were sculpted by Graham in a day right. or a day and a half. Yeah. Um, and he did a lot of other stuff too. And so he, he and I had become friends um, he had a, 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 a beer commercial someone asked him to do for Pills Lager uh -huh. with Donald Pleasance, wow. where um, he had a bar full of horror characters, a pub mm -hmm. full of horror characters. So we did Quasimodo and the Wolfman and Frankenstein, and they were all drinking beer in a pub, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but it meant that he saw that I was able to, you know, to do some of that work. And, and when they got Star Wars... He's persuaded his dad that I should be the new guy on the team. In the first Star Wars, when we did the creatures for, ca for the cantina, people, um, uh, you know, my boss was, uh, you know, in his 60s. He was born in, uh, he was born in, in 1914, all right? So his imagination of aliens and other stuff you know, you're seeing comic books and all kinds of other things, and it fires your imagination more. His, his, his imagination was much more terrestrial, I think. And so after we'd shot the main unit, um, George had an illustrator do a series of drawings, and they were really way out. And they actually then gave those drawings to... Uh, Rick Baker and Rick and his crew made up a bunch of those and threw in some stuff that they already had lying around. When they came to the second one, they had done illustrations for Yoda. They had uh, already decided what they thought he would look like. So Stuart sculpted him up. But as soon as it was sculpted up, once again, in 3D, it was like, well, I don't know. He doesn't look very friendly. He doesn't look very cute. Um, he doesn't look very wise. And so they just kept changing it and changing it and changing it and changing it. And five months went by. When you compare that with the fact that they gave us six weeks to build the creatures for Moss Eisley and film it, to then give us 10 months to build Yoda and film it, they just thought they had a lot of time, so they took a lot of time. And then at the last minute, it was like, listen, guys, we're building the world's first animatronic superstar. You know, we, we need to get on with the mechanism, not, not just what he looks like. And so um, in the final analysis, the, the Yoda that you know came together in the last two weeks. Often when people talk about Superman, they'll ask me, what the hell did we do? Because... There's very little in the movie that is really very apparent. But, you know, Chris Reeves couldn't fly. And um, people don't think about it, but to make him fly, we needed to build a lot of dummies. We built 12-inch dummies with mechanical capes flying over miniature cities. We built half-size, covered in 3M beads so they could glow like a poker um, when absorbing the energy from an atomic bomb. 
Uh, we built full-size ones to be fired out of cannons over Niagara Falls uh, because you can't put your main, cat, your main actor or even a stuntman on wires hanging from a helicopter and fly him over Niagara Falls. You know, it's not something you can do. And in the same way, you can't take a 12-year-old boy and put him in a canoe and push him over Niagara Falls. Uh, we had to make dummies of the boy. We had to make dummies of the cat to be rescued from the tree because... You can't staple a cat to a tree while you swing a guy on wires backwards and forwards to pick him up. People, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, the RSPCA, we were filming it in England. The RSPCA didn't like that. Um, and we built a polar bear to swim through the ice flow at the, um, at the ice fortress, uh, which, uh, uh, I mean, there were a lot of stuff, but people just took it for granted. And I guess that was a, a credit to what we did that they didn't, noticed that they were all dummies and, uh, and fake things. But to me, that taught me that in later life, if I had the opportunity to do something that was obviously an effect, as opposed to something that could be mistaken for being real, that was going to be better for my career because I spent a year working on a movie and nobody knew what the hell I'd done. Well, let's talk about the cantina. Yes. <laughs> um, so what was the process? I loved you described Graham's work where I, I wrote it down so it's exact, where it was simple, quick, and effective, right? Making sure yes. that it's that process. And when you're populating a whole bar full of characters to look different, what was that like for you specifically having to kind of work in that environment and right. grow that? Well, moment? first and foremost... Um, at that point in time, there weren't that many people who were able to do that kind of work. Right. Um, Stuart had uh, brought in uh, another uh, well-known makeup artist, uh, Charles Parker, that we all called Charlie, and I found out years later he didn't like Charlie. <laughs> so he's Charles Parker. Uh -huh. And he had a reputation for doing um, you know, significant uh, work on other things and he was the one that was doing what we called at that time the uglies right so he was sculpting five different uglies and um, I I started out as the new kid on the block and I had been trying to get into being as I said being in a in a makeup effects team rather than being a straight makeup artist with Stuart right. by that time it was five years after the first job that I did with him right. and so I was worried he would decide that I wasn't up to the job and let me go mm -hmm. and so uh, there was a degree of anxiety that that kind of pervaded me for that entire six weeks mm -hmm. um, even though I'd worked with him for 16 weeks before it was just a different class of thing. Right. But it was hard to find, uh, you know, a lot of other people. Right. There were two artists who had been there before me. Um, one was Robin Grantham, but he was leaving to do another job. Uh, he had made the eyes for Greedo. Mm -hmm. Greedo was largely put together by that time. Um, but we didn't call them Greedo. There were five of them, and we called them the Martians. <laughs> and um, they had started as an alien and bird's eye pea commercial. Right. And just because we needed to fill the room, um, 
somebody, it might have been Graham, it might have been uh, Robin, I'm not sure, had, you know, made these foghorn bits and bigger ears to go on and a snout. And so it was kind of patched together. And then on top of that, um, they decided they'd put a mohawk and warts. And by that time, I would had taken over doing all the foam work. So I was foaming... uh, uh, Chewy's mask, right. just making the foam skin underneath all the fur, right. and uh, and I made the mohawks that f- went on the Martians, and I made the um, all the warts right. and stuck warts on a lot of them. And uh, Tom Spina now tells me that they identify, <laughs> um, you know, which mask these Martians are right. by the pattern of warts. There we go. Because none of them are the same, you know? Well, <laughs> right. they didn't need to be, you right. know? We, we were thinking of them as background characters. So, yeah, it was, it was a bit nerve-wracking. It was always in a hurry. Graham, uh, as I say, Graham was a, a, a guy who would just, he wouldn't mess around. He would put something together quickly and, and move on. Mm-hmm. Whereas Stuart was the, the guy who was very particular and would do something and then rebuild it and then right. adapt it and then throw that bit away and make it again and do it again, right? right. Uh, Graham wasn't like that at all. And yeah. so Graham was doing a large bulk of the work and Stuart was focusing on that movie largely on Chewbacca, right. which was based on the on the apes from 2001: mm-hmm. Space Odyssey. It was the same technology, just mm-hmm. sculpted differently. Very interesting. Because then, when you moved to Empire, it's interesting seeing that leap and like the things you worked on the Tauntaun or the Minoc, or then of course Yoda. The the process evolves a little bit too with kind of the growing Star Wars universe. The growing Star Wars universe and the growing of me as a more serious member of the team, right? right? Um, when I went on to that, I, I thought, you know, I was just a, a team member, a more capable team mm-hmm. member. But actually, um, Kay, Kay, who was Stuart's right. wife, she was a makeup artist much more than she was a effects makeup artist. And so she might do some artwork in a bit of finishing. Um, but uh, basically, there was Stuart, there was Graham, there was me, uh, there was Nick Dudman, right. who I'm going to say was a junior, not mm-hmm. a trainee, and two trainees, right. right? And we were there to make everything. Well, Stuart's working on Yoda and working desperately to try and get the what we now call the prototype working. Right. Uh, that took up all of his time. And once Graham went down on the sound stage, uh, then I was the senior guy left in the <laughs> workshop, right. right? And it wasn't by design, and right. it certainly wasn't by you know by job name. Mm. But effectively, if it hadn't been that way, when thing, when they needed extra things, they wouldn't have come to me and asked me to do it. I, I'd love to now hone in, of course, on Yoda. And you mentioned four different Yodas were created. Big part of Empire Strikes Back as well that had to be fabricated and created. And no, the one in the backpack was uh, was really uh, that was a radio control version. Mm-hmm. It was one where I collaborated with the guys from special effects that were building all the little robots running around. And they built the radio control mechanism 
Um, and then they gave that to me and I did the assembly right. and the other stuff and then Graham and I did the artwork on it. That was really used for the wide shots mm -hmm. where you couldn't get puppeteers in because, you know, believe it or not, you can't get three or four puppeteers in a backpack. Right. I mean, you, you can try, try but yeah. their legs stick out. Right. It's ugly, it's yeah. ugly, you know? Um, and so every time they went into a close-up, mm -hmm. That was Frank Oz right. with the close-up puppet. Right. The the one the main one. Um, I mean, I wasn't on set all the time. Right. It was sometime later that Robert Watts said that I'd um, I'd saved the day, uh -huh. and it was and and Dave Barkley said that uh, that the backup puppet was used for ninety percent of the shots. Basically, there is a, a distinct difference between the two puppets. Mm -hmm. When you look at Yoda inside Yoda's hut, mm -hmm. that is the prototype. Right. And if you look at it, you'll see the eyes are often partly closed. Um, they are quite often a little crossed. And he has big, ugly teeth. Uh -huh. When you look at him in the forest, he, his eyes aren't half closed. And, uh, and he, he, does, he doesn't look cross-eyed. And uh, he has much smaller teeth and that's the backup that i built that's great because i just couldn't i thought he looked rather brutish right with the big ugly teeth and so i just cut them down yeah well, what was that process of the initial build when you were first having to put together the, the puppet what was going through your mind to make it a workable thing for like you're saying multiple puppeteers having to make this come to life what was what was the important part that you were really What was I on? thinking? Right. I was thinking, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, can <laughs> I make this work? Right. Now, um, I had watched what Stuart was doing. Right. In fact, uh, there's a they, in, they they did a a making of I think for the last movie, and That's there's a little frame there <laughs> that shows me and Stuart looking at the at the mechanism right. that he was building. Right. And I could see what it was that was causing the problems. Right. It was too sophisticated. Right. Um, and so he was trying to make a, a mechanism that could be taken out of, mm. the, uh, out of the skull and played with and put back in again. And uh, he was just pushing the envelope too much for the amount of time he was left with. Right. Um, they asked me, actually, if I could build a puppet that they shoot on the back of its head. Mm -hmm. uh, that maybe the ears would work so that whenever they had to take the puppet out to fix it, they could at least run around and Yoda would be in the shot. Um, they, when they asked me to work on a backup for him, they actually asked me if I could put together something that they could shoot over the shoulder of. Right. And to be quite honest, I could have put something together in a day that was made from parts that weren't working. Right. Um, uh, you know, I had suggested to them that maybe it would be good if the ears were working. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, give me three days. Right. And so... I, I honestly was trying to make something that would do the job. And I was, I was taking a mixture. I was taking Graham's basic yeah. principle of a no-nonsense, keep it simple, get yeah. it made and get it out there with Stuart's ideas of how to make something work. Oh, right. And so instead of making a fine mechanism, 
I literally cut holes in the skull <laughs> and acrylic cables into it. Right. You couldn't take the mechanism out, right? right. It either was going to work or it wasn't going to work. Right. And um, I tried to make something that would do everything that you could possibly want it to do. Um, and we, we, worked through the, we worked through the day. We worked through the night. Mm -hmm. We worked through the next day. <laughs> uh -huh. We worked through the next night. Right. We worked through the next day. And we worked through the third night. And, you know, I say we did 60 hours in three days wow. because you, we had to sleep a little bit. And I would lie under the table mm -hmm. and sleep for two or three hours while Bob was soldering something together. Right. And then he would sleep for a few hours while I was doing the next thing. And we got it finished literally two hours oh before gosh. it was due on set. Oh, my gosh. And... Um, we were frightened to actually try and operate it. Mm -hmm. We stared at it for like a good half hour before we had the courage <laughs> to see whether it worked right. or not, right? And so um, it, was, uh, it was exhilarating. It wasn't a nice mechanism. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was kind of a bit stiff. Right. But the way we'd build it was never going to break down, <laughs> right. right? It was... Uh, uh, and it didn't. Very cool. And then, of course, there was the, the walking Yoda Deep Roy was right. in as well. Yeah, that had happened before. Uh -huh. um, what, that was actually the first one that was, I could say, was my concept. Mm -hmm. Because uh, they asked Stuart if he could make a, a walking Yoda. And he immediately thought, in the most complex form, of how you... You know, would put a mechanical Yoda <laughs> on a pole right. and put uh, that was hidden by the figure from the camera right. and have it moving. Right. And, uh, you know, the camera would move as well to make sure you never saw the pole. Right. And just said, no, we haven't got time to do that. We don't have the staff. We don't have the time. And because I was the only senior guy left in the workshop, um, you know, it's never a good idea to tell a production you can't do something. Right. It's better to produce something and say that's the best we can do than give the job to somebody else right. or, or even admit that you can't do it. So they came to me and I said, well, why are we talking about an animatronic Yoda? Why don't we just make an oversized Yoda? I can, make, I, I can take a Yoda skin and I can chemically expand it. Uh -huh. It'll be very floppy, so yeah. I'll have to put some plaster bandage or something inside to hold it together. But then we could put it on Deep Roy. I mean, I guess looking back on all of the things that you had a, a hand in, literally, almost, in Star Wars and Empire especially, is there any creation besides Yoda that sticks out to you as as maybe you discovering your craft and you like feeling like, oh, this, like you mentioned earlier, this was your contribution or your like full yeah there's a couple of things that i'm fond of you know i i i liked the uh puppet version of the minoc mm -hmm. because Stu thought of it as a throwaway character and so he uh he said oh well nick can do that right <laughs> uh -huh. and 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 i wanted to sculpt something that was completely unlike anything you'd find on earth um and so I, I made this thing that looked like it was melting and dribbling and, Wonderful. Wh and yeah. whatever else. And so I have a fondness for that. Mm -hmm. um, as time has gone by, I, you know, another throwaway character was Dengar, mm -hmm. um, who didn't even have a name at the time. Right. He was just Bounty Under Number Three or right. whatever. 
but there was also a character that didn't make it into uh, Star Wars that is another 20-minute conversation. <laughs> the next time. <laughs> um, that we called uh, Nogard. Uh, uh -huh. That was a, a cross between an ape, a frog, and a lizard. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and a newt. Mm -hmm. So we got the word N from newt, mm -hmm. Og from frog, and Ard from lizard. Wow. And we called him Nogard. And then uh, one day someone pointed out that Nogard was dragon spelt backwards. <laughs> it was like, uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> And so, um, you know, I, call, I now call him the lost dragon from mm -hmm. Dagobah, you know? Um, and years later, I, I, I rebuilt him. Oh, so yeah. He's in the museum oh, yeah. with Yoda. Well, tell, uh, to wrap it up, tell people how they can visit you in, in your incredible... Yeah, we, we have this uh, little museum in St. Martin. And some people say, why are you here? <laughs> well, you know, I say in, in my book, um, you need to be the red tree in the forest. Uh, when I go to a convention, I'm actually another green tree amongst a lot of other guests in the in the Caribbean. I'm the only Star Wars personality for <laughs> 1,500 miles. Sure. And so um, it, it actually works quite well for me. So, I, you know, I, I take that motivation that I had from that teacher who told me I was an idiot going to work in a factory... And I try to inspire every kid that comes in. I try to help them understand that you can't live an extraordinary life by being normal. Mm -hmm. Another word for normal is average, and average people get killed in video games, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and people don't think about it. They do what everybody else does. And so I started the museum to fund the foundation. And it, we have, um, you know, holograms and DVDs of myself and a few other people. Uh, you know, Dave Prowse is yeah. there talking about how, uh, how none of us knew who George Lucas was and <laughs> how the Vader costume didn't fit and how the helmet kept twisting around and, you know, telling you the stuff that Lucasfilm's never going to tell you. Right. And, um, and we're the number one most popular activity, according to TripAdvisor. Yeah. So, you know, for a long time, we survived uh, well on, um, on people coming on cruises. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, COVID drove all the cruise ships away. Sure. And so we're in our 15th months without an income. Uh, we're just starting to get people right. coming in through the airport. But that's like 10% of what we normally right. get. I've survived largely through supporters who who sign up on Patreon mm -hmm. to uh, you know to give us five dollars or ten dollars a month, and I'm trying to work out a reward system for those guys. It's good because they they buy things and they get things, but they know they're supporting a good cause That's along great. the way. We're in St. Martin in the Caribbean. And so come and see us. Love it. And then we'll also put a link to the Patreon and a link to that Yoda guy. We'll put a link to everything in the yeah. show notes. Everyone can click through because I was telling you before the show, I've never had a guest that has so much of my research already done for me on the site. It's a wonderful resource. And Mr. Maley, thank you for taking the time. This was such an honor. And I, and I would also point you at another website that I put up, which uh, I don't know whether you found it or not, which is called thoseyodaguys.com and on there I talk about everybody else who had a part in making Yoda so that people understand I'm not trying to claim I'm the only Yoda guy I'm that Yoda guy not the Yoda guy right. 
Yeah. I love it. Well, Mr. Maley, thank you again. What an honor. You're welcome. Thanks again to Mr. Maley for coming on the show and being so passionate and so entertaining about his time on Star Wars. As we discussed, head to thatyodaguy.com for a treasure trove of stories and to find out even more about his movie exhibit in San Martin. As always, thank you to Zach McGinnis and Galactic Productions for setting this up. Head to our show notes to get some autographs and to see where his clients are going to be next. My interview with legendary producer Robert Watts is in this month's issue of the Star Wars Insider, so definitely pick it up and let me know what you thought. Uh, It really is just a dream come true. Until our next episode, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.